Jesus' original purpose was to unsettle his audience, to reverse their value system and force them to rethink their religious understanding and priorities. So that moves us into the next section, what it meant to them then, the original audience. Now, this is a really important step in trying to understand any text, but specifically here this morning, the parables, is that oftentimes we'll we'll read something and we'll just race to the finish line to get immediately to application, skipping over exactly what it meant to them. In some cases, (laughs) the meaning that you pull from this may have nothing to do with the original intended audience because you've missed it. So first we need to understand how would they have understood this at the moment, at the time that he had said this. Now, the average common person listening to these parables understood that there was representations, that there were second levels of meaning within the parable itself. Common people understood this. Now the intended, argument, uh, the intended audience rather, was not restricted to the Pharisees. You can see that, but it says to some who trusted in themselves, right? The tax collector represents those who look with contempt upon, who are looked upon with contempt by others. So essentially what I'm saying is that the parable doesn't only apply to Pharisees and tax collectors. We kind of intuitively understand that, right? I mean, if it did, then why bother reading it? I mean, it's just, well, that's, they're not even around anymore. So we understand that they are meant to, meant to represent something other people other than these characters themselves. The common people understood this. So let's get to the meaning, what they would have understood at that time. Now this word justification comes into play here. The common use of this Greek verb that was used is translated as justified in verse 14. At the time, we understand this because we have resources now, that what did this word mean at the time it was used? Because we know words and language change over time and their meaning does too. What did it mean at the time they said this? Well, what it meant at the time is that it meant to be found in the right, to be declared free of all charges. It's kind of a legal term. Now, what they would have known about what justification was is that essentially that those whom God declares free of all charges are not those who trust in themselves that they are righteous, but those who humbly acknowledge their own unrighteousness before God and seek his mercy. That's his point. People would have been shocked to see that. You mean this person, this person, the tax collector, went home to his house free of all charges and not this person rather than the other, as Jesus says? He's challenging their understanding of what it meant to be right with God. Now, there is another element to this is that there's judgment. There will be a future judgment when those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. So it does touch on this future judgment. If you understand the original languages, you see that this judgment is with certainty, that grammatically you can tell that it's it's a certain future judgment that is going to happen. And I think there's an eschatological judgment implied in this, meaning an end times kind of judgment. Jews believe in a, in a judgment at the end times. They, they believed in that. So there's kind of hinting at that, that there'll be a future moment where this is going to happen. And the third element of this is that self-righteousness was exposed. Remember, as we went over the background, that pretty much everybody treated tax collectors with contempt. So the tax collector is the perfect character to expose the self-righteousness of the listener. And some there present would have known that this is not a new teaching. 
Many knew their Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Psalm 138.6 says this, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. And in Proverbs 22.4, we read that the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Not a new teaching. So, what does it mean to us now? What does it mean to us now through the lens of the gospel? On the other side of the cross, in other words. What does it mean to us now? So it'll be uh, item five now, I think, in your handout here. What does it mean to us now that we see this? Well, before we get into that, mistakes to avoid. There's a few things I want to lay out for you as you, as you understand and approach the parable itself. Some things we want to do to avoid missing it. One of them is allegorizing or imposing secondary Christian meanings onto the text itself. You turn it into something that it really doesn't even apply to the original audience because you've, you've imparted meaning that really wasn't intended. And a lot of times it's, it couldn't have happened because it's historically, it's more in more modern times. We turn it into an allegory completely. Be careful of that. The second thing is moralizing the text. What do I mean by that? I mean focusing on behavior modification. And, and here's what a moralizing sermon would be, and we could be done in five seconds. Here it is. Okay, don't be like the Pharisee and exalt yourself. Be humble like the tax collector. Okay, have a nice day. Go home. That's moralizing. That's about you. Okay? Don't do that. And believe me, when, when I, in part of my research and, and preparation for this, how much moralizing is, is, is being considered preaching? The problem with moralizing is that Christ becomes irrelevant and unnecessary. It becomes about you and not him. The third thing is formulating doctrine from a single parable. Now you have to be careful because parables are figurative speech, uh, a type of figurative speech involving comparisons. But they're not intended as a sole source for doctrine. Yet sometimes we do that, right? Rich man and Lazarus, we come up with a whole systematic theology on, on the afterlife. It's a parable. There's some truths in it, but you have to be careful that you can't use it as a sole source for doctrine, doctrinal teaching. And then there's another issue about re, isola, um, interpreting it in isolation. So what, what I mean here is that Luke's gospel doesn't end at chapter 18, does it? It goes on. We know the rest of the story as it plays out. So we have to look at this on this side of what it means through the lens of the gospel and that opens up a little bit more meaning into what's going on here. But you have to take that first critical step in understanding what it meant to them first and then look at it what it means to us now in order to make sure you don't miss it. And I would add another one that just came to me the, the, over the last day is you have to be careful that your particular theological framework isn't forced onto this text so that you'll miss the actual meaning. It has to, the text has to speak to you in its own terms. So, moving forward, what it means to us now through the lens of the gospel is this, is that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And what I'm telling you is that the parable points us to the gospel. It should point us to the gospel. Here's my case. The end of Luke's gospel, chapter 24, 44 through 48, the resurrected Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So the gospel proclamation is the fulfillment of God's plan from the very beginning, the very beginning, and that the parable, like the rest of Scripture, points us to the person and finished work of Jesus. That's the way to look at this now. Now, continuing to make this case, let's look at the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul, as, as many of you know, was a former Pharisee. The same religious sect spoken about in the parable. So if you please would turn to Philippians chapter 3. Just turn right here a few books and go over to Philippians chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. And there's an interesting thing that comes up here. Remember, and keep this in mind, that Paul was a Pharisee. So we're going to read 1 through 9. Or I'll read 1 through 9. Follow along. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law... A Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The Judaizers were teaching circumcision was necessary to be found in the right with God. Now circumcision was instituted by God toward Abraham to identify those who had been set apart as God's people at the time. The Mosaic law prescribed that every Jewish male is to be circumcised on the eighth day after birth. Don't you see Paul referring to that? Circumcised on the eighth day. That's what he means. His background is following this, these laws. As a, became a Pharisee. And yet, what does Paul say about all this now? In light of the revelation of God that was given him on that Damascus road, Jesus himself 
the resurrected Christ, appearing and speaking to Paul. And he was converted. Now what does Paul see as he looks back? Paul says he puts no confidence in the flesh, though he had every reason to. Now what did he mean by confidence in the flesh? Well, it was all those things that he spoke about. The physical outward expression in circumcision, his own lineage, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, the zeal that he had for pursuing the religion that he thought was true, following the law, he was blameless, and there were hundreds of them. That's what they were known for. And he says he counts them all as rubbish. So what Paul is telling us here, what God through Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit here, says this, that justification is being found in the right by God, declared free of all charges, and it's not about trusting in your own righteousness or having a righteousness or a confidence in the flesh, but trusting in the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And here's how he even brings more detail of it. And this is the part that's significant as well. It's not a righteousness of your own. It's a righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith. Now, Paul referred to these Judaizers as dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh in verse 2. What is he... Why such harsh language? Why such harsh language? I mean, dogs is what the Jews called the Gentiles in many cases. He's calling them evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Dogs. Why? Because Paul saw this requirement of circumcision that they were trying to force on the church, the early church, as a threat to the gospel. As a threat to the gospel. Just much as like he opposed Peter to his face when Peter started to withdraw from the Gentiles to just eat with his fellow Jews when they were around. Paul opposed him. Why? Because he saw that as a threat to the gospel as well. So the harsh language comes into play. The, the simplest thing I can think of is, let's say your child chases, a small child chases a ball out into the street and a car is coming around the corner and just barely misses him. Now, would you stand on your doorstep and say, hey, son, um, in the future, if your ball goes out into that road, it'd probably be a good idea not to chase it after it, okay? Or do you say, get over here, and you grab them, and you say, listen, don't run in the street. You see, it's not that you're angry, it's that the intensity of what you're saying, that you want it to sink in. That's why he called them names like this. That's why he's trying to make a point that this is going to pollute the gospel. It's going to add to it. And when you add to something, what you're saying is that originally it's insufficient. It's not enough. That's what Paul was guarding against. Now, secondly, I want to get into the judgment aspect of this now in light of the gospel. The certainty, there is a certain future eschatological judgment. It's a tough word. That Jesus will judge the world. Jesus is going to come back and judge the world. In Matthew 25, Jesus on the final judgment said this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, speaking of himself, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. In Acts 10, Peter, preaching to the Gentiles, said this, And he, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So let's complete the trifecta here. Jesus, Peter, and Paul. Paul preaching in Acts, Acts uh, chapter 17, preaching in Athens, said this, that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. His resurrection proves that he is the righteous judge and he is coming to judge the world. Thirdly, our self-righteousness exposed. Now, the exaltation of self and the treating with others of contempt are really the inevitable consequences of a law-based, rule-based religion. But well, unfortunately, this persists in even the Christian church, those that call themselves Christian. Old Testament scholar John Bright said this on the pathology of following laws and rules continuing and persisting in the church, that there are those to whom religious faith is largely a matter of rules, to whom the cardinal points of religion seem to be the abstention from certain habits and frivolous amusements considered sinful, in the cultivation of certain pious practices and regular attendance at church. And in these things they take great pride. For by these are the righteous known from sinners. So the question that just begs to be asked here is, are you a self-righteous person? Have you ever treated another group or person with contempt? Have you ever prayed, God, I thank you, I'm not like... Well, name your group. Have you ever said, God, I thank you. I'm not like this person. I go to church. I tithe. God, I thank you. I'm not like this group. I serve in ministry. BC. Even to those who don't necessarily identify themselves as Christian. I'm speaking to those who hear this message today or maybe in the future, some future point. Have you ever thought to yourself, hey, I'm not perfect, but I, I think I'm a good person. Well, by implication, it means you are comparing yourself to people you consider not good people. Self-righteousness. And here's the secret that all human beings suffer from the sin of self-righteousness. That's who we are. The parable exposes our self-righteousness before God and the need for his divine mercy. And it also tells us why Jesus is necessary. Now there's a short verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says this. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that what Paul is saying? It's a righteousness not your own. Even going back to Genesis 15, what does the text say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's credited to you when you put your faith and trust in Jesus that he died for your sins and there's an exchange that occurs. Your sins are effectively placed on him. It's what the entire Old Testament sacrificial system was pointing us towards, the person and work of the Savior, is that our sins are transferred to him and dealt with. And he suffered God's wrath for it. And in return, his righteousness is counted to us. (laughs) His righteousness is counted to us. Perfect righteousness. And yet we know we still struggle with sin. Now, new believers, I know there's some of you here that are new to the faith. You you need to be instructed in this verse and what it means. And mature believers need to be constantly reminded of what this means. And unbelievers need to come to grips with this truth. Now, let me give you a personal illustration. (laughs) I'm not one for personal illustrations because I feel it pulls me away from the text, but this is completely relevant here. There was a period not too distant past here that... My youngest daughter and I were at odds over something and several times I would give her instruction on what to do and there was pushback and a few minutes later it would rise up again. Instruction, what to do, pushback again even more. And this went on for <coughs> three or four times and by now the temperature's been turned up. And I got out of my chair in anger and I cursed at my daughter and told her to go to your room. And after the temperature cooled off, I recognized what I did and I went to her and apologized and sought her forgiveness and told her I was in the wrong. That was the fairly easy part. The hard part was what I felt the rest of the evening, that now there was this weight on me. How could I have said those things? It doesn't matter what I said. It was unholy speech. You can fill in the blanks. I went to bed that night and I couldn't sleep well. And the first thing when I opened my eyes in the morning, it was on me again. And I felt this tremendous weight and burden. I mean, after doing something like that, I'm an elder in this church, trying to be a good example to my family. I felt that I'd somehow disappointed him. And I was standing at the sink looking out into my backyard and This is my state of mind at that time. And and this verse came to my mind. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, I had failed to grasp this until this moment. 
that God in his mercy allowed me to see the truths contained in this verse, that it's not my righteousness that makes me right with God, but it's the righteousness that I receive from him as a gift by putting my faith and trust in him, in his righteousness. So don't fall into the same trap that I did. When you screw up, when you trip up, when you say something you should have or do something you shouldn't have, don't beat yourself up and, go and just wallow in this pity. What you should do is exalt Jesus. You should exalt him. That's why he came. You see, it's not your righteousness that makes you right with him. It's his that he gives you as a gift for placing your faith and trust in him and what he's done. That's the gospel. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him by faith we would, might become the righteousness of God to stand before him blameless. Not because of our deeds, because of what he did. You see? If you don't understand this truth, I'll go on a limb here and say you don't understand the gospel. I don't care what kind of vestments you're wearing. If you don't understand this basic gospel truth that Paul tried to get to us in, in Philippians, and as the rest of Scripture points to in the Old Testament, and the New Testament exposes fully, you don't have the gospel. You have a system of rules that you think you're going to follow. And that's what's going to make you right with God. But here's the bad news. God demands perfection absolute perfection to what he has commanded. Nobody can do that. There's only been one. That's why he came. So as we move into summary and application, I want you to look at how justification, judgment, and self-righteousness that should be on, uh, in your handout or at least make note of that, that these are all interconnected. From the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector regarding justification, we're confronted with the radical nature of God's grace in justifying sinners who repent and seek his mercy. Regarding judgment, we're confronted with the certainty of a future judgment when those who trust in their own righteousness before God will be humbled. But those who have acknowledged their sin before God and sought his mercy and forgiveness will be exalted. Couldn't be any plainer than that. And under self-righteousness exposed, we're confronted with our innate desire to exalt ourselves and treat others with contempt, pointing us to the absolute necessity of Jesus Christ. That's why he's necessary. Now, no doubt that the Spirit hopefully... When I asked you about people, group, or individuals, something came to mind, some conviction. So now what do we do? What, how do we live in light of these truths now? And, and I've confessed this to Pastor Mike. Sometimes when we get to the finish with applications, I, I, I struggle with some of this sometimes. Okay, I, I get it, but now, now what do I do as an encouragement to you? Well, I cheated. <laughs> I didn't ask Mike. I went to Paul. <laughs> I went to uh, Paul, the former Pharisee. And in Philippians 3.3, 3, Paul proclaims this. He tells this in response to the false teaching of the Judaizers that were trying to require circumcision. He says to them, we are the circumcision. 
Now, what does that mean? What it means is, we are the ones who are set apart and identified as the people of God. And he gives us a description of who those people are. And that's my application here this morning. First, we are those who worship by the Spirit of God, that we are enabled to worship God truly by His Spirit. Without His Spirit, you can't worship Him. Secondly, we are those who glory in Christ Jesus. That word glory means to exalt, to boast in Christ Jesus. This is what identifies us as the people of God. We glory in Christ Jesus and what He's done and who He is. That Jesus is King, that Jesus is Lord, that He's the Savior of the world, that he's God incarnate. And the third thing is that we don't, we are those who put no confidence in the flesh. We have no confidence in our own righteousness, but only in the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's who we are. That's who we are. Now, <laughs> I have to touch on this. So what, what, well, then what are good deeds and holy living and all that? Well, I would tell you this, that good deeds and holy living and righteous, living righteously is, are the fruit of justification, not the grounds of it. Do you see the difference? Some of you may come from a, a, a faith tradition or another religion where justification is a process largely dependent on your ability to keep rules and laws. And if you screw up, well, you got to go back and you got to go through the whole thing again and get re-justified. Where in the parable and elsewhere in the scriptures that justification is not a process, it's a declaration by God himself. A declaration. The holy living and struggling through sin and working that out and changing is what we call sanctification. Becoming holy, reflecting the Savior's character as you live your life. So, how appropriate this morning that we have the Lord's table before us. Now, what I would suggest to you as we transition into our communion, we practice an open communion. You've heard that before. You don't have to be a member of the church, but if you are a follower of Christ, that you've confessed your sin to him and asked for and sought his forgiveness and received forgiveness of sins, then you approach that table. The middles can come forward. The, the sides can return to the back. There's a gluten-free option at the, at the front here in the middle. But as we do this, as we get the elements together and bring them back to your seat, and we'll partake of them together. I'll lead us in the communion when, you, when everybody's seated. But as we do this, think about these things. We worship God by his spirit. We exalt Jesus as Lord. And we put no confidence in our flesh, but in his righteousness. So please, uh, come forward and we'll, uh, Aiden will uh, play some music for us as we do that. And uh, once everyone gets the elements together, then we'll, we'll continue on. I'll lead us in that. <laughs>